right. Let us, let us begin in a word of prayer this morning. Father in heaven, we give you praise, we give you honor, and we give you glory this morning as we gather together as your redeemed people, as we gather as your people who have been saved out of the world, out of sin, out of darkness, and you have translated us into the kingdom of your dear Son. We come before you in thankfulness and gratitude for giving to us your grace and for showing to us the light of the gospel and the light of your holy word. Lord, we pray that as we are gathered together that we would glorify your name and we pray that you would work in us, Lord God, to make us like the Lord Jesus Christ and to purge us from the dross and purge us from those things that do not please you. And Lord, we pray that you would refine us by your grace and by the power of the Holy Spirit working within us. Lord, we also give you honor because you are God, the one true God, the creator and the sustainer of all things. We submit to you as the sovereign king and we recognize Jesus Christ as both Savior and Lord, who died on the cross and who rose again from the dead. So we praise this morning the living Savior, and we pray that he would be honored and glorified through his gathered church this day. And we pray all of this, and we commit this to you in his name. Amen. Amen. Please stand. We're opening with, uh, on Christ the solid rock, I stand. I'm a 406 if you want to follow along in there.
Amen. Well, if you'd remain standing with me this morning as we open our Bibles together to the, the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 19 this morning. And uh, brethren, these are the very words of God, the very inspired words of God that he would have us all to have here this morning. Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse number 11, we'll be reading through verse 27. Again, these are the very words of God himself. And as they heard these things, he added and spake a parable, because he was nigh to Jerusalem, and because they thought that the kingdom of God should immediately appear. He said, therefore, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. And he called uh, his ten servants and delivered them ten pounds and said unto them, Occupy till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a message after him, saying, We will not have this man to reign over us. And it came to pass that when he was returned, having received the kingdom, then he commanded these servants to be called into, unto him, to whom he had given the money, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first, saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained ten pounds. And he said unto him, Well, thou good servant, because thou hast been faithful in a very little, have thou authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained five pounds. And he said likewise to him, Be thou also over five cities. And another came, saying, Lord, behold, here is thy pound, which I have kept laid up in a napkin. For I feared thee, because thou art an austere man. Thou takest up that which thou layest not down, and reapest that which thou didst not sow. And he said unto him, Out of thine own mouth will I judge thee, thou wicked servant. Thou knowest that... Uh, that I was an austere man, taking up that which I laid not down, and reaping that I did not sow. Wherefore then, gavest thou not my money into the bank, that at my coming I might have re uh, required mine own with usury? And he said unto them that stood by, Take from him the pound, and give it to him that hath ten pounds. And they said unto him, Lord, he hath ten pounds. For I say unto you, that unto every one which hath shall be given, and from him that hath not, even that he hath, shall be taken away from him. But those mine enemies, which would not uh, that I should reign over them, bring hither and slay before me. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we again are so grateful for the word of God. And Lord, this morning as we take a look together at this glorious portion of scripture, we pray that the Spirit of God, for if He is not moving and, and uh, applying the Word, it is a hopeless thing. And so, Father, we pray this morning that the Spirit of God will indeed apply Your Word to Your children. Deep down into our hearts that we might understand, Father, that our eyes might be opened, our ears might be unstopped, that we can hear and see and understand what's being said. And Father, now I pray as we, again, put away and put aside those things of the world, that again our religious affections will be drawn to the word of God and to what you have to say to us this morning. Father, now we do ask and pray these things in the name the Bible says that is indeed above every name. That name the Bible says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to the glory of God the Father. That glorious name that the demons shudder when they hear it the powerful and holy and glorious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated this morning.
Well, good morning. Well, those of you who were here last month, you notice we read the, the entire passage again called the parable of the pounds. The reason I wanted to read it all again was right, it's good for recapping what we already went over. And if you recall, if you're here or if you, you know, uh, or watched it or listened to it, you know, everything we, everything we teach and preach here is up on Sermon Audio. But you remember I, I, I was talking about the one thing I wanted to mention is it's amazing as I go through a lot of commentaries that several commentaries consider this parable of the pounds to just be the same parable that we're showing in Matthew, parable of the talents. And if you recall, if you're here, I went through that. Looking at that, you'll find out that they are different. And because you can see plainly they were taught at two different times in two entirely different places. <clears throat> but there are a lot of similarities, which leads me to agree with several very good commentators that I believe what Matthew 25 was, was an, a further expounding upon this, which he had spoken and taught roughly just a few days earlier. But there are some overarching views here I wanted to talk about, and that is when we read that, you notice, first of all, it teaches us a couple, a couple main, very large truths, that there's a lot to all of it. And sometimes we can just read through Scripture and we can just bypass all these and not realize, you know, the, the, the depth and how reading elsewhere in Scripture is what I talk about. Scripture interprets Scripture. Well, how does Scripture interpret Scripture? Because as that's why we're to read Scripture and continue to read Scripture and get more and more acquainted with Scripture because that's how it is as we go through the Holy Spirit and some of us faster, some of us slower. I mean, we, we're all various gifts in various places in our walk. Will start revealing to us as we as we work. We'll start seeing this uh, very continuous themes and the same themes that we taught elsewhere, and we'll see how they interconnect and how they combine. But if you notice, I said before, and this is what almost any any scholar throughout the whole history of the church would agree. One thing this nobleman he's talking about in verse well, he said this one, verse eleven. Remember, and as he said there. Because, you notice the last part of it, 11, Jesus spoke this because he was nigh to Jerusalem, which shows he, he was already went through Jerusalem before he gave the parable of the talents. That's one thing we looked at. That's one way to know for sure they're different. But the other thing about it is, because he was nigh, and because they thought that the kingdom of God, the physical kingdom of God, should immediately appear. And I just mentioned of that, that's saying, you know, this kind of gets into eschatology. And I just want to give a, you know, a, a little note on there, and we mentioned it before. But after this, I, I really do, I, some, there's a part of me that really wants to get into eschatology. And that is, a lot of us look at eschatology and think it boils down to, well, when exactly is Jesus going to return? And it goes so much deeper than that. And it's not a fundamental issue, but it is an issue that's talked about throughout the Old and New Testaments. So we're going to take a deep, start taking a deep dive into that during Bible study in the mornings. So I encourage anyone, if you have the time, to come make that, because we're going to take a real deep, systematic dive into theology and, and look at it and see just how much deeper it goes and just 
when exactly will the Lord appear and what will things be like when he appears? It goes so much deeper because it has a lot to do with, right? Just what will we be doing in eternity? What will we be doing in the millennium? What, how will we be serving the Lord when we pass, when we, when he, after he returns? Another thing it teaches us, right? The Lord will return. That's a fundamental doctrine. One day, and the church has been waiting now for nearly 2,000 years, but one day he will return physically, in the flesh, set up his throne, and then he'll reign. And anyone wants to disagree with that, it's interesting. I'm not going to get a lot into theology, but I'll, I'll touch upon this. The premillennial view, and it takes various forms, but fundamentally at its core is what the earliest church fathers all taught. It is the most thoroughly and, and easily defended by explicit teaching of Scripture, not implicit, not implied, not maybe it teaches this, but explicit teaching. And premillennial just means there's a millennial rain coming where you'll physically appear on the earth. And that will happen before the end, before the new heaven and the new earth. And when you understand, that has a lot to do with us serving him now. And what does he mean by rewards? Because a lot of us might think that, well, Lord's going to come back and then uh, we're all just playing harps up in heaven or, I don't know, kicking back in a, in a rocking chair throughout all eternity. We're to serve him now, and we'll serve him throughout eternity, but in a much different way. And it, we're going we're gonna to look at a little bit of difference of that. Now, I did say I talked about that a little bit, and I did talk about it. I wanted to get into his talking about how do we serve him. But I just want to look because the other views... It's funny. They either, they think differently. One view, amillennialism thinks there's no millennium. We're in it right now. What's described in Revelation and everything, we're in it right now, and the Lord's going to return, and then the eternal state starts. Somehow Satan's bound, and I honestly, honestly, it's kind of a flimsy view biblically because you know, they'll say, well, it flourishes more at times and things are going great. I don't know how it's flourishing so much at all in that, but you look through all church history and biblical history, Old and New Testament. What happened to all the Old Testament prophets? They were persecuted, and almost all of them either were persecuted throughout most of their lives, and many of them were put to death. I don't know where they see the ultimate, where, you know, victory after victory after victory. You know, they teach that his physical reign is now, and it'll just come, but... We'll get into that more in Bible study. That's why I want to get on there. But I want you to look at something. The other two views just say, well, it focuses so much on this Revelation 20 and this millennial teaching. You know, and we got to look elsewhere in Scripture. And I don't want to spend a huge amount of time on that. Like I said, it's better. We're going to go over that in Bible study because it's better to really take a deep dive systematically into that. But if you would turn to Revelation 20, I want to show you why. You know, trusting that all the Word of God truly is the Word of God, and that it makes sense, it makes sense that the explanation is shown in other places of Scripture. It does, it does imply, even in the Old Testament, a time on earth that we've never experienced before, but that there'll still be death, there'll still be some sin, there'll still be some unrighteousness, but it's a time we've never lived through. And it's a time that Jesus is literally reigning from his throne, sitting on his throne. And that is the millennium. It's the only way the old, the old Testament, all the Old Testament prophecies fit in with it. But in Revelation 20, 
They'll just want to say, well, it just mentioned that one time. Well, yeah, the, the millennium, the thousand years, is talked about this is time, but if you're all here, I remember uh, several months, uh, I remember one time Mike went back in this and he talked about it, but I want to mention to you, yes, it is here just in Revelation 20, but see if the Holy Spirit, who inspired all of Scripture, right, is trying to make a point to us here, starting in Revelation 20, verse 1. And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key. Now, remember, this is, this is after, right, this, this great congregation and everything. And, you know, after originally there, there was a battle, and we, you know, how exactly it all works out, you can understand. We can argue about that, but there's a time. This is, you know, after he has returned, because we can plainly see that. Okay. I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on that dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years, number one, and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season, number two. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, in which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Number three. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. Number four. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such a second death hath no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. Number five. And when the thousand years are expired, number six, and Satan shall be loosed out of his prison. And then he goes on to deceive and everything. Okay, why do I say we know that is in a future time? Why? Throughout all the New Testament, what do we see? What are we warned about? Satan is roaming around now. He's a lion, right? Seeking whom he may devour. What are we told now, right? That uh, that other people, the Gentiles who do not know Christ, right, are taken captive by Satan to do his will. Whenever Satan wants to. You know, we understand that God is in control, but there's, you know, there's a certain place throughout Scripture we see that where he's allowing Satan to deceive the people you know, and to do his work, and there'll come a time when he'll be allowed to show such great signs and wonders that if possible, it won't be possible, but if possible, it's going to be strong, strong, that even the very elect will be tempted and, and, and you know, and have to be concerned. It'll be very strong signs, right? But all these things just show that how someone would believe that Satan's bound now. How somehow his power is limited now. And I believe it will. You know, God unleashes him, and he keeps him back, just like he keeps indiv- or us as individuals, you know, keeps people back from sin and, and letting, you know, and, and just letting all this, you know, us become, you know, the, even society becoming more and more defiled. But we see now that as they harden, right, we can see the society around us now becoming more and more and more ungodly, you know, because God's lifting, start, he's lifting his restraining hand as he does throughout time. But the time will come where he'll really lift, where he, he lifts the hand right near the end. That's what this is all talking about. But then when he comes comes back, the first time, he'll set up the kingdom and be a thousand years. 
And in the beginning, and really for the first couple hundred years from the church, from my best understanding, just about all the writings we have and everything, then in one form or another, the church fathers, I'm talking the first couple hundred years, just all read it literally. They believe in Revelation 20 literally. There will be a millennial reign. Now, they didn't all agree on all the substances exactly when it will be returned. The big fight, really, between premillennialists is basically kind of, well, uh, will the church go through it now, and to what degree, and, you know, will we be up here to then? That's really, really the discussion. And then some discussion about exactly uh, how does it go like he's dealing with the uh, with is the Israelite, the Israelite as a nation, and its people, and the Church of God, but premillennialism was the first, and we got other things. And to keep in mind that whatever view you want to sit upon, we need to start with these fundamentals. One, he's going to come back. Two, as history and the epistles, the old, the New Testament, throughout the epistles, it shows until that time, we are to serve him, which also. Back in Luke 19, it teaches us, right? He goes away, but he gives talents unto his servants. And then he comes back, and then he calls all his servants to account. Okay, what did you do? What did you do with what I gave you? So that's another thing. We are, he, is, he has gone away into a far country to receive a kingdom, right? We see that in Luke 19, you know, in the, in the parable, you know, that Mike, Mike read for us. He goes into a far country. He gives his... He gives his servants talents. When he returns, as I just read there, that's at the end of this age, right? When he returns physically to reign on the earth, then he'll call his servants to account with what they have done. You see on there, he says in verse 13, and I talked about this, right? And he called his ten servants and delivered them ten pounds and said to them, Occupy till I come. Occupy means make transactions, do business, you know, trade. You know, but do business with what I gave you. And it does say in 14, but his citizens hated him and sent a message after him saying, We will not have this man to reign over us. And it is interesting, I'll just say one thing, I'm not getting into that. Most of the commentators of Rito spend a long time talking about how this depicts uh, a relative of Herod that was going to Caesar to, you know, receive, you know, his victory, you know, his, you know, his authority to rule, and the people in Jerusalem didn't want him to. That's not the main point. He was just getting their attention, right? Because he always started with something they knew. The main thing is to understand all people that if they're not believers, right, if they're not with Christ, if they're not with Christ, they're against him and against us. But that's what it's teaching there. If you're not with him, if you're not a believer, if you're not walking with him, right, you're against him, and you don't want his rule over you. So verse 15, it came to pass that when he was returned, who? The nobleman, who's now returned. He's received his kingdom. Now he's returned to physically reign. Then he commanded the servants to be called unto him, to whom he had given the money, that it might know how much money every man had gained by trading. Then came the first, saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained ten pounds. And he said unto him, Well, thou good servant, because thou hast been faithful in a very little, have thou authority over ten cities. Now, a minute, is that a little ten cities? I don't know, we're going to look at that in a minute. And that, uh, 
You know, when he sets up his millennial reign, we're, I'll show you something else. You need to go into theology. Nowhere does it actually teach. When he comes back, not every, not every unbeliever is destroyed. There'll be unbelievers in the millennium. You've got to understand that, right? And when it talks about, what did he say when I read that in Revelation 20 there? What did he say? The saints will rule and reign with him for a thousand years. Well, what are we ruling, what are we ruling and reigning over? I mean, if everything's done, if it's only believers and that, and it's some kind of, uh, you know, almost like a mystical feeling. We're all floating around playing violins or something, right? We're ruling and reigning with him. And just like in present day now, we know that, like a, a king, a king. And, and this is something they understood in that a king, here's a good example, Pharaoh, a king, right? King of Egypt. Well, what did he do with Joseph? He saw the wisdom of Joseph and that God was with him. And what did he do? Him being just a physical man, but kings have always done this. They give their rulers, and the more faithful, the more authority they give them to rule in their name. And that's what he's just talking about there, right? I'll give you over 10 cities. And, of course, because he was very industrious, right, and, you know, very industrious and gained, he worked hard. Not for salvation, but for rewards. He was rewarded very generously. Just think, he was given a little, ten, and even the Lord said it. You have been faithful and little. Right? So he gives him authority and rewards him much. What a generous Lord and Savior we serve. Amen? But and he said unto him, Well, thou good servant, because thou hast been faithful and very little, have thou authority over ten cities. 18, and the second came, saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained five pounds. And he said, likewise to him, be thou also over five cities. They rebuke him and all saying, oh, you should have worked harder. He said, well, okay, but think of it. Okay, so, oh, he's just reigning over five cities, right? He did, and it was all by the grace of God, but he determined, I'm going to serve. And he was industrious, but he didn't gain quite as much as the first servant did. Lord still said, you know, you're a good and faithful servant. I'm going to put you over five cities. What a generous, generous reward. Greatly, greatly. You know, that's where some people don't understand the spiritual. When it talks about, you know, about eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor has entered into the heart of man, all that God has prepared for them that love him. And, of course, we say it all the time. We love him because he first loved us, right? Just imagine that. We can't imagine that, you know. Literally, a time, a time on earth, imagine, where the Lord's reigning physically on earth on his throne, right? There's people all around, but those of us that he has called, that he has blessed, that are saved by his grace through the sacrifice of his son, right, are ruling and reigning with him over, you know, over that, over the coming earth. And the, the coming when he'll be physically on the throne of David. It's truly amazing. But what a, you know, what a mighty God we serve. But it just shows his generosity. He is such a generous Lord, a generous noble man, a generous king. Right. Verse 20, and another came, saying, Lord, behold, here is thy pound, which I have kept laid up in a napkin. So he just took what the Lord had given him and took it away. 
right? He just put it away. For I feared thee, because thou art an austere man. Thou takest up that, sh that thou layest not down, and reapest that thou didst not sow. And he saith unto him, the king, Out of thine own mouth will I judge thee, thou wicked servant. Thou knewest that I was an austere man. He's not agreeing with me just saying out of your own mouth, right? So he's just showing this excuse, this lame excuse that this man used, which he also exposed his heart to. The king is using his own words to judge him, right? Thou knewest I was an austere man, taking up that I laid not down and reaping that I did not sow. So what is this wicked person done. Now it's someone that called himself a servant. If you remember, Judas was considered a servant too, and he betrayed our Lord. right? But uh, it's amazing in some commentaries, there's a lot of discussion, even to this very day. Is this actually a born-again child of God? Or is this somebody that was just a professor and lived his life Outwardly, he probably looked, he or she probably looked like a servant or acted like a servant and said they were a servant. But in reality, when they're called to account, what's in their heart is laid bare. I'll say, I would say this. I am convinced that this is a lost person, just a false professor. Because... And I'll, I'll tell you why. First of all, Jesus never anywhere calls any of his saved children wicked. Wicked. Another thing, you read all of 1 John. Nowhere in the Bible would it indicate that a man with the Spirit of God in that is born again, regenerated of the Spirit, would call the Lord an austere man. That means harsh, hard, severe. Right? You look at him as a hard taskmaster, an unpleasant man. Right? Not only that, he takes up that thou layest not down, and reapest that thou didst not sow. He expects us, he expects us to do the work and to take stuff that doesn't he doesn't even have a right to. So he's calling him a thief. No born again child of God would say that of the Lord Jesus Christ. We may induce stumble, we may induce, you know, have times of fall, we may have time of great distress, but we're our heart attitude. <laughs> if you're a born-again child of God, boy, there's something wrong. If you're, it basically, right, this man has no love whatsoever for the Lord Jesus Christ. No love for the king. None. Just great. He says he has fear, but what is Jesus pointing out to him, right? Verse 23. Wherefore, then, you know, why, you could say, why gavest not thou my money into the bank that at my coming I might have required mine own with usually what he's saying? If you really thought these things of me, he did in his heart, but if the reason you didn't do anything was because you, just because you, you thought I was a hard taskmaster, if you really believed that, you wouldn't have been so lazy. You would have feared, went out and worked. You would have gained something. He's just laying his own heart bare here. Right? The guy's worthless. 
And no, no child of God is worthless or wicked. <clears throat> and he said unto them that stood by, Take from him the pound and give it to him that hath ten pounds. And they said unto him, Lord, he hath ten pounds. Verse 26, For I say unto you, that unto every one which hath shall be given. And from him that hath not, even that he hath, shall be taken away from him. Then he says, But those mine enemies, which would not that I should reign over them, bring hither and slay them before me. Now there's some, I just want to mention verse 27 real quick and touch on it, that will say, well, here he's talking about right when he comes, and he is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, and since, there's, since the Jews rejected him, when, when you know, the, the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. Again, it's, maybe that's part of it, but what he's saying, just like over in just like, you know, he said in 14, in 14, you know, those people, right? Because well, all, you know, all people on earth, but that refuse to follow him, not have him as Lord, right? Well, they'll, they'll eventually be destroyed. <clears throat> Verse 26, though, it's interesting, that passage for I say unto you that unto every one which hath shall be given, and from him that hath not, even that which he hath shall be taken away from him. Go to Matthew 25. You see the, sim the, the great similarities. I don't want to read all of Matthew, but read it, the parable, you know, the terrible of the talents, and you'll just see, I think you'll agree, and with the earliest times too, that it's just an expounding upon this parable. Because there's so many things like it. It's just a greater thing because in this parable that we're reading, we're looking at right now, he gave all of them equal talent. But then he expounds upon it, and he's talking with the, uh, an equal pound, right? Equal. But in the parable of the talents, well, he gave some more and some less. We all, the main meaning on all of it is he's given us various gifts. He's given us various talents. He puts us in various situations. Whatever it is and wherever we are and whatever we've been gifted with or have, our knowledge we have, use it in service to him. And you'll be rewarded greatly, whatever that service is, but serve in the capacity you're able to. And remember, because all we have is from him. Amen. But when you look at Matthew 25, <clears throat> And drop down into the near the end of the parable of the talents. <clears throat> because he, he says the same thing there. First, take a look at this. In verse 20, in, in, starting in verse 24, the wicked servant on that one, right, came forward and you know, and and basically charged the king with the same the same charge. And the Lord judges him according to what he says and calls him in verse 26 a wicked and slothful servant. Right, you can see just the parallel with it. But verse twenty-eight: Take therefore the talent from him, and give it unto him which hath ten talents. For unto every one that hath shall be given, and he shall have abundance. But for him that hath not, shall be taken away even that which he hath. He ends that parable the same thing that ends of this. Ah, but we're given one further insight because it's an expounding upon that parable. And cast ye the unprofitable servant, that one he called wicked, that didn't do anything with what the Lord had given him, into outer darkness. 
There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And another thing why this is eschatological also, right, verse 31, when the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory and before him shall be gathered all nations. We just see, right, eschatology is a lot more than just when he will return. It has a lot more to do with it than that. But I want you to notice that they wonder, well, because he doesn't say necessarily, it just says in, in Luke there that this man, even the talent that he had, even the one thing that he had was taken away from him. Right? And they say, oh, well, maybe he just lost his rewards. But you notice, we're definitely told there, because I'll guarantee you in that it has nothing to do with eternal life. There's no weeping and gnashing of teeth. All right? He's casting out of darkness. And the reason I say that is this, and we'll look at this, but it's so important. It just shows us that as we wait for him, and it's taught throughout, throughout the New Testament, as we wait for him, his return, and he will return, we are to serve him with everything we got. There is no excuse. You know, we talk about it all the time, but how, how does Scripture always come in with Scripture in that, right? He says, because of everything every re, everything he's done for us, Romans 12.1, how can we not but live for him? It is just reasonable. It is totally unreasonable not to. And then he says, of course, and it ties in, we can't live for him. If we try to live in our own power and that, we won't have any joy. We won't, have it. We won't really have peace. I mean, we'll, we'll be stumbling in that. We'll actually be pretty miserable because we're trying to do it in our own power if we are born again. And I think you'll find that this idea, and I'm not saying it at all, but this idea that somehow the Lord saved us so we can sit back until we go on to glory or he returns and sit on our blessed assurance is 100% unbiblical. And you'll see, not only does the Lord give all of us something, whatever it is, two clear things. We are expected to serve. We are expected to work with it. And if we work with it, we'll gain something. And him who refuses to work with it, the scriptures tell us that person's a wicked servant who's going to be thrown into our darkness. What it shows is a person that's never born again who has no love for the king. If you have no love for the king, you know, you examine yourself. There's a good way for us to examine ourselves. If there's no love for the king. If there's no desire to live righteously, if there's no desire to gain fruit for him or anything, Scripture says in that you're just deceiving yourself. But I also say that to say this. Sometimes we might give up or we think, i got to do this or i got to do that or i got to do this. It's not exactly the type of service he's talking about. You just determine to be a doer of the word, not a hearer only. It's as simple as that, what James tells us. But there's another thing I want you to see. And the reason I said that, you notice when he talks about, you know, to him who, ha who has will more be given. To him who doesn't have, who doesn't have what? <laughs> Who's not really a servant. He doesn't have anything. What he thinks he has will be taken away. Notice he, he finishes it in Luke and Matthew. And we see the context there about serving him, right? About serving him, right? And gaining and gaining for him. Well, I'd like you to turn. We're in Matthew 25. But go to Matthew 13. 
And we're just going to see where, right, the, there's a theme. He says that several times in the New Testament. Those, the, the same exact thing. And I've got to put my glasses on now here. <laughs> but in Matthew 13, and this is interesting too, right? Now, Matthew 13, I read last time, too, also just to show about that the whole time while we're waiting for his return until he returns, there's going to be the wheat, us, the children of the kingdom, and there'll be the tares, the children of the evil one, right? Verse 41 of Matthew 13, The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather to his kingdom all things that offend, and them which do iniquity. Okay, we see, he's returned now. But... <clears throat> I want you to take a look at, oh, I'm sorry, Matthew 13, verse 12. Verse 12, I'm sorry. Okay, verse 12. Now, earlier, before verse 12, what, what's he what's he was talking about? He's talking about, you know, right? Talking about sowing the seed, right? And he's talking about, right, some seeds fall by the wayside, you know, up above and that, some fall in stony places, they get scorched, some fall among thorns. But verse 8, but other fell, the seed, the word of God, but other fell on the good ground and brought forth fruit, some a hundred, some sixtyfold, some thirtyfold, right? Just like we're told else. Each according to their ability, each to the word of God has gifted them. But the word of God has been sown into their hearts, and it's taken root. They've been regenerated through it. Who have ears to hear, let them let him hear. And the disciples came and said unto him, Why speakest thou unto them in parables? He answered and said unto them, Because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it is not given. For whosoever hath, to him shall be given. And he shall have more abundance. But whosoever hath not, from him shall be taken away, even that he hath. Interesting, same thing he said in Matthew 25 at the end of the parable of the talents. The same thing he said in Luke 19 at the end of the parable of the pounds. Once you talk about serving him, but in this context, what's he specifically talking about, right? Them, right, being regenerated. And with that word, some will gain 100, some 60, some 30. But to unbelievers, right, to him who doesn't have, whatever it is, right, they won't gain nothing in the end. Even what they think they have will be taken away. Remember, we were told in Timothy there'll come a time they'll have a form of godliness, but not have the power thereof. It doesn't matter, right? Just all falsehood will be done away with, right? It's all in the Word of God. Then let us go to Mark chapter 4. See that this common theme again. Mark chapter 4. <clears throat> and in go to verse 25. And it's interesting again, he had just given the parable again about sowing the seed. Right? Talks about them going on in Mark chapter 4. Go to verse 24. Right? And he just got to talk about sowing the seed. First, actually, go, go up to uh, verse 20, Mark chapter 4. And these are they which are sown on good ground. Right? The, the seed. Right? The seed, the word of God. Such as hear the word of God and receive it and bring forth fruit. Some 30, some 60, some 100 fold, right? Some 30 fold. And he said unto them, Is a candle bought to be put under a bushel or under a bed 
and not to be set on a candlestick? In other words, right, just elsewhere, right, our light is to shine before men. We are the salt of the earth, right? We have been blessed in order to be a blessing. See, and those people that would teach other forms of psychology and saying, well, premillennialism and believing that, well, you don't really serve. Well, they never taught that. Wherever they get that, well, they get it from various things, but not by the historic original teaching, right? Because we see in that overall, we wait for his return. He will return someday. He will physically sit at the throne. He will reign. My only question is, is it a little over a thousand years or is it a long period of time? That's not a real big deal because either way we'll be with him, right? But he'll reign on earth for a long time and then it'll come the end. But it's so interesting. We'll be ruling really and reigning with him. But you notice he tells them, right, these are saved and when they realize they're saved, some bring forth various fruit. But all of them that receive the word, that receive the word and don't get it choked off, right? They grow and they bring forth various amounts of fruit. And just like we see in the other parables of the pounds and the talents, each according to their ability, each according to what God has given them, because to God be all the glory. You know, we're told in Corinthians, you know, what have you got that you did not receive? In other words, what gifts, what talents? Are you smart? You're seated from the Lord. Right? Are you healthy? You're seated from the Lord. Are you musically talented? Trust me, you're seated from the Lord. You got a lot of wealth? You're seated from the Lord. Whatever it is, right? We owe everything to God. Yeah, our, ver our very souls, our very eternal lives, our very eternity, right? We, we owe it unto God. But now notice in Mark 4, in verse 23, If any man have ears to hear, let him hear. And he said unto them, verse 24, Take heed what ye hear. With what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you. And you that hear shall more be given. For he that hath, to him shall be given. And he that hath not, from him shall be taken even that which he hath. And he said, so is the kingdom of God. <laughs> As of a man... She cast seed in the ground. It's so amazing, right? You see all this. He's talking about redeemed people and the word of God. Once they receive that word of God continually, we see also, we talk about it all the time. I, I've done myself several, I mean, sermons on it and, and several Bible studies on it. But the word of God, right? John 17, 17, our Lord's, our actual Lord's prayer. He prays for us, Father, sanctify them with thy truth. Set them apart. Your word is truth. How can we serve the Lord and be sanctified apart from growing in our knowledge of the word? We can't. Impossible. Right? We're told to walk in the spirit and to be filled with the spirit. We must have the word of God richly dwelling in us. The more richly it's dwelling in us, the more we'll be walking in and living in and praying in the spirit. Right? So it's the, the, the two really go hand in hand, right? It's not that we work in order to be saved, but we work because we are saved. And if we are born again, we will work. Right? He says, let no one deceive you. We are to work. That is a desire to there. Maybe it's quenched. I would say a lot of it. I know in my life, I can, I can direct my own personal life. And a lot of times, this is the honest truth. Do I spend a little time with the Lord? And I'm talking in the word. Before I head out to do my daily thing, I'll tell you, 
You might get by with it for a day or two. After a while, you should notice if you're, if you're a person, if you're a child of God, <laughs> your day goes better. But there's something about it. As he takes the word of God for us who are born again and are his, that word of God shapes us, right? It puts that new man on us and at the same time takes that old man off. We determine to do it, but apart from the word of God, we're doing it in our own power, right? It'll increase our prayer life. It'll enrich our worship life. It'll enrich everything about us. And it'll also make it, okay, it literally makes it easier for us to walk in righteousness, and everything else in that. But I want you also to turn to Luke chapter 8. And you'll see that, is this just me saying this? Is this my opinion? Is this, you know, it's throughout the word of God. The connection with, first of all, we're saved by the word, right? It's by faith. Faith come up by hearing, hearing by the word of God. We're sanctified by the word, right? We walk in the spirit by the word of God, rich and dwell in us. We have our minds renewed by the word of God. Right? And only by having our minds renewed by the word of God can we know what is that good, acceptable, and pleasing will of God. Right? It's through the word of God that builds up those rivers of living water that come forth out of the believer. <laughs> so what excuse are we using for not being in the word of God more? And it's not doing it just to go, you know, I could, oh, I could upstage Mike on that or Mike doing it so I can, oh, I'll know more about Howard than that. It's for us to know God and his will and his law and his precepts, right? For we truly get to know him because we spend time with him through this word. Yes, in prayer. And a big part of prayer is also worship, giving thanks unto his name and acknowledging and praising him for who he is because unto him be all the glory. But all those things, you know, like in Jude when it talks about, right, build yourselves up in the Holy Ghost, in the Holy Spirit. Talk about through the word of God, right? Apart from the word of God, right? Apart from the word of God, we, we are trying to do it in our own power. And I guarantee you in that, that, that our, and it's not just retaining the knowledge, because even when we don't realize it, the word of God, right, it says, for a believer, for us as believers, has a miraculous, through the Holy Spirit in us, cleansing, empowering work that it does just as we're taking it in. And whenever needed, that is what the Holy Spirit uses. We'll be guided and directed through our growth in that. But uh, Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 11 again, right? He gives a parable again about the word of God and sowing the seed. Now, now in 16, in Luke 8, 16, no man, when he hath lighted a candle, well, verse, four, verse uh, 15 first, but that on the good ground are they, which in an honest and good heart, having heard the word, keep it and bring forth fruit with patience. Verse 16, no man, when he hath lighted a candle, covereth it with a vessel or puts it under a bed, but sets it on a candlestick that they which enter in may see the light. For nothing is secret that should not be made manifest, neither anything hid that should not be known and come abroad. Let's keep that in mind, too. <laughs> One day everything will be laid bare. Amen? And we'll stand before God. But, uh, verse 18. Hmm. Take heed, therefore, how ye hear. 
how you hear what? What he's saying. The word of God. On, on what we're being taught, right? Take heed therefore how ye hear, for whosoever hath, to him shall be given, and whosoever hath not, has not that word, is not born again, born from above. From him shall be taken even that which he seemeth to have. So he's really talking with that servant there. It, it exposes something, and we should all keep in mind, right? It, maybe we've been beaten down. Maybe for some reason we, we've allowed worldly cares and worldly philosophies to come in, and we've used that to maybe for somehow excuse us from do, sometimes not doing what we know to do. And I'd say it's more, it's more often that, right, for not letting our light shine, not always giving a reason for the hope, an apology for the hope that is in us, you know, We need to just take that to heart because all he's talking about there, he's saying, right, we, we see that, go back to Luke 19, we see it plainly being taught that those that are his, right, have been regenerated through the word of God. We have the word of God, right, but that we produce fruit. And if you're unwilling to produce fruit, now you may have been deceived into thinking, Whatever, and, and not jumping on it, right? He's saying each according to their own ability. But not, they're called wicked servants. They're called not servants at all. It says those are unbelievers. Now, uh, one other thing, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And I'll talk about this, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I see we're running up on time here, but I want us to see where it's talked about there that he really goes at, at length to let us know that, you know, we, we are to grow in our understanding of him. And be careful how we grow in that understanding of him, right? So, say in this word, not by worldly philosophies. Beware, let, let, lest you be deceived, right? Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he, he starts off, Back in verse, you know, 10, he's talking about co-laborers, right? Building with God, building upon the truth, right? Verse 11, further foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which in Jesus Christ. And then he talks about building upon that foundation gold, silver, precious stones, right? Good things, good fruit, eternal things, things of value, of true worth. Or wood, hay, and stubble, worthless, empty things, things that will be burned up in a fire. Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it. Well, what day is that? If you remember before, I talked about it. It shows in Scripture. It shows in Revelation. It teaches it in Romans. It teaches it elsewhere, right? We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And it's not, right? We are eternally saved and kept by him, but we will have to give an account for what we did what, what we did while we were here, waiting for him. <clears throat> Verse 14, If any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. And I said this before, what exactly does yet though as by fire mean? I don't know. I, I like this interpretation one uh one theologian said, I would consider it to be 
Like, imagine you just ran out, got out of a burning house, but your coat tails are on fire. Back in the day, you had those long coat tails. Well, you don't need to be that way, but that's the way it'd be like. It goes out. But you're, you know, you're in, you're saved, but you lost your reward. You know, you, I mean, you, know, you lost a great amount of your rewards because remember the one that, that gained 10, he was given power over 10 cities. The one who gained five was given power over ten, five cities. <clears throat> I just want us to all think about that. But another thing about us serving him, right? We don't serve him to gain rewards, but it should encourage us along knowing that the Lord is generous and he'll reward us to our work and he uses that to encourage us on. <clears throat> but you notice when, when we were in Revelation 20 there, he talks about rule and reign with him. And you just wonder, it's not over other believers. It might be those believers that just made it in and that in a sense, right? Those that are maybe more mature in that. But that there'll be people here. I want you to I want you to think on something, and that is this, and this is an attack you hear a lot from other sides about against premillennialism, believing that there'll be a thousand year reign, thinking, well, what do you mean? I mean all the right, all the unbelievers are gone. They've all been judged. They they've all been thrown in the lake of fire. Remember the lake of fire judgment, the final judgment does not occur until after the millennial reign. And elsewhere, when we take a dive and look in eschatology, we'll see that is plainly taught throughout Scripture. Plainly. There's no doubt about it. But the thing we need to look upon, it also shows us times showing that not, everyone, not everyone's destroyed when it comes back. And I'll use some of the things they always attack us on in, and some things called when will the rapture be. But go to Matthew, Matthew, uh, uh, Matthew 20. Go to Matthew 25. Oh, Matthew 24. I'm sorry. Just go to Matthew 24 because I want you to see something to be thinking to be thinking about uh, about this when it just shows that you know that there'll be a earthly kingdom that will be ruling and reigning with Christ in, and it should be a great encouragement to us. But also when he says this, he says we will be rewarded accordingly to our service. With his power, we got to make the determination, right? We we grow and take the word and you know and serve him, but we'll be rewarded accordingly, okay? Because Matthew twenty four, look at verse. Uh, okay, actually Matthew twenty four. Okay, what I want you to show is that he talks about there, we won't get into that right, he's obviously returned, the angels sound, a great sound of a trumpet, you know, he gathers his elect, right? And, I, and elsewhere, all in the scripture, when it talks about his return, in several places it talks, it's going to be noticeable, the whole world's going to see it. And whether you want to say he comes with angels and saints, just angels, just saints, either way, it is going to be something everyone will see here, it'll be loud, it'll be, everyone will know it. But drop down to verse... 37. But as the days of Noah were, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they, who? The unbelievers, those that were taken away in judgment. Keep that in mind. A context, context, context. They were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered in the ark. And knew not until the flood came and took them, right? Those under judgment, those that were judged, took them all away. So shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Verse 40. Then shall two be in the field, the one shall be taken, the other left. Two of them shall be grinding at the mill, the one shall be taken, the other left. 
Well, okay, in context, who's he talking about there? It's so amazing people use this saying he's talking about the rapture of believers. He's not. He's talking about taking away people in judgment. But they're not all taken away. You notice that two will be there. One will be taken, one will be left. Two will be there. One will be taken, one will be left. doesn't exactly mean 50% of all the people, but that's what it means. That's what he's saying there. And he's talking about, remember, all the way through it, he's talking about unbelievers, the ungodly, those that, for instance, no, weren't in the ark. He's not talking about no one in his family. Right? Now, uh, with that also go to Luke 17. I want us to see this to show that a lot of times people, you know, don't think about uh, where all these things because, you know, again, eschatology has a lot more to do about just, well, exactly when's the Lord going to return. Because we won't know exactly. We won't know that day. Scriptures tell us plainly. So it's, it's not really about the day he's going to return. It's that he's going to return. And what's the millennium going to be like? And what are we supposed to do while we're patiently waiting for him? That's what eschatology is all about. Okay, uh... Now, in Luke 17, he's talking again about that he's going to return throughout, throughout 17, uh, starting in verse 20, okay? But verse, drop down in verse 26, right? And then he's talking about the Son of Man, right? He's describing the coming of the Son of Man, right? His, his returning again. But verse 26 of Luke 17, And as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be also in the days of the Son of Man. They did eat, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage, until the day that Noah entered in the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Who did it destroy? The unbelievers, those outside the ark. By the way, what was the ark typified? Our Lord Jesus Christ. So we're safe. Those in the ark are safe. We're in the ark, we're in Christ, those of us are in Christ, we're safe. He's not talking about believers here. Verse 28, likewise, also as it was in the days of Lot, they did eat, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built it. Who? Those that weren't gods, right? But the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all in judgment. Those that were under judgment, that weren't in Christ. They weren't in the ark. They weren't, they weren't taken out of safety. They weren't walking by faith. They weren't living in faith in Christ. Amen? But even though Christ, right, they're waiting for the Savior and that, but they weren't, they weren't God's people. Even thus shall it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. So we need to take a look at that in those two places. Uh, now, it... Uh, he, he talks in 31, you know, and he, he talks about, you know, it, it should not be, you know, don't, don't waste time when you see that day coming. But remember this, verse 34. I tell you, in that night there shall be two men in one bed. The one shall be taken, the other shall be left. Remember, through before, context, context, context. The people taken are always ungodly, those under judgment. They're taken in judgment. Verse 36, two men shall be in the field, one shall be taken, and the other left. The answer is, unto them, we're Lord, and he said unto them, where's over the body is, there will the eagles be gathered together. In other words, you can, all, you can always tell. We'll always tell. When the Lord returns, we're going to know. That's what they're asking him, right? Just as we can, you can know back in the old days, even now, you'd be out there, sometimes we see it on movies too, but how do you know there's some dead bodies, whether it be animals, people, whatever, out somewhere? All of a sudden, you know, we see birds 
birds over them. But it's so interesting there that he talks about that, right? Those taking a judgment. I want to show you how that goes with that. Turn back to the Old Testament, to Zechariah, and we'll see that you know, we see there are teachings that it, it's saying he went, does it make sense that Revelation, the last, the last book given unto us, would be the one that explicitly taught and most clearly taught about his second coming and how it plays out in the millennial reign, right? But, and we understand that we're ruling and reigning, right? It's clear teaching in Revelation 20, if you read it literally for what it is. Again, whether the thousand years is literal or a long period of time, it doesn't change anything. Because I don't know about you, but I can't imagine a thousand years anyway. So it's a long period of time either way, right? But the fact that we will rule and reign with them, there's that thousand-year millennium. That, along with much, much Old Testament prophecy, and here, here and there in the New Testament, it just backs it up. Look at Zechariah 14. Uh, if you notice here, it talks about, on that day, starting verse 13 of Zechariah 14. <clears throat> and it shall come to pass in that day, what day? These people are making a stand against the Lord. That a great tumult from the Lord shall be among them, and they shall lay hold every one on the hand of his neighbor, and his hand shall rise up against the hand of his neighbor. And then they're talking about Judah shall also fight. There's this great, you know, there's, there's, there's just this great battle. But what happens? Right? Verse 15. And so shall be the plague of the horse, of the mule, of the camel, and of the ass, and of all the beasts that shall be in these tents as this plague. Verse 16. And it shall come to pass that every one that is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall even go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of tabernacles. And it shall be that whoso will not come up of all the families of the earth under Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, even upon them shall be no rain. And it goes on. Isn't that interesting? So enemies of the Lord, enemies that gathered against him, are left. And are on the earth. These are obviously enemies because they were fighting against him until the Lord returned. There's other places, but I just want to see that that when we see those places in Scripture where it talks about you know the Lord returns and then He removes all from His kingdom and the wicked be destroyed, we got to remember that throughout Old Testament prophecy, throughout prophecy in Scripture, in that there's gaps. There's gaps. And that's what I believe he's talking about, right? Everyone's not destroyed because we need to remember, right? You go on in Revelation 20, we'll look at that, but remember, this is another thing premillennial teaches. It's after the thousand-year reign. Then, right, all the dead, not those, everyone, all believers, they're raised in the first resurrection when the Lord returns and sets up his kingdom. But then is going to say dead. Then even hell gives up the dead in them. And then those not found written in the Lamb's Book of Life are cast into the lake of fire for all eternity. Now, anyway, I teach it. The thing about it is, is we need to understand that the reason I want to touch on that is there's encouragement throughout when he talks in Scripture about us serving him and about rewards. And we may not understand, or, and I never really have spent a lot of time thinking about rewards I'm not saying we should, and we should just serve him for rewards. And I don't think he expects that, because elsewhere in Scripture he talks about, you know, basically 
a good and faithful servant, yes, and that's what I want to hear on that day, amen. I hope all of us want to hear that. But also he, he tells us in Luke, well, when that servant does what is required of him, you know, should he expect to get a lot of praise? And while we're here on earth, that's what he means, while we're here on earth, well, no. But that day is coming. Remember, he tells us, enter thou into the joy of the Lord, right? Eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor heart is under, mind is understood, you know, what God has prepared from that love him. And we love him because he first loved us. He teaches us there is a reward. There is a time coming. Whether we go to meet him or whether we're here when he returns, depending on how you, <laughs> you believe, but he's going to return and we are to wait for him. And when we're waiting for him, we are to serve him. Now take a look at that. You go through a scripture. How do we serve? Read his word, but right? We walk in righteousness, right? We're loving one another. And, right, we live for him. And we think, look, and that just simply means also we do what we're supposed to do. If you remember last time I talked about it too, it's like, why do you call me? He told him, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Another place in Scripture, John 15, you are my friends if you do whatsoever I command you. Do we? Do we? Are we sometimes listen to worldly wisdom and worldly thought and for whatever reason are justified because our default position is just selfishness and sloth when it comes to spiritual matters. It's true. It's true. Or maybe it's just me. But that's our default position, right? It's the Lord that does the work, but we have to realize that there's a balance there. But we commit ourselves to him, and we need to understand that he has given us all various gifts. There's spiritual gifts, but even individual talents and everything. And he says, serve me in whatever capacity you can. And you'll, in the end, be rewarded generously for it. And so I'll keep in mind on that, right? Because he was telling us we'll all receive eternal lives. But given, it will be given unto you. Right? Good measure. But what he's talking about there is, right, doing others he would add to them. But when we serve the Lord, when we serve the Lord from our heart, with, right, all our body, soul, strength, and mind, he rewards us generously. And he'll never allow us to go through something where he does not give us the power and the grace to bear. Amen? Okay. Uh, with that, let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness, your grace, your mercy, your loving kindness, which is better than life, Lord. Oh, Lord, I pray that this word would go into all of us, your people, Lord, and help, as your, as your word says, just build us up, Lord, and instruct us and, and convict us and teach us, Lord, and correct us if there's any errors, Lord. And, Lord, help us to discipline ourselves unto godliness, Lord, by reading your word, by determining to, to pray, by gathering together, Lord, by doing the graces, the things that you tell us to do that will immensely, just cause us to grow in righteousness and to be literally transformed in the image of your Son, Lord. Your word declares us, help us to understand it more and help us to believe it. It is the truth. It is a truth that we have been given a new nature and we put on that new nature. We build that new nature through doing what you told us to do. 
and mainly that is through your word, which sanctifies us, Lord. Help us all discipline ourselves. Again, I say, more and more godliness, Lord. Forgive us, Lord, where anyway maybe we become lazy or, or sloth, or for whatever reason, just maybe not been serving you. And also help us to realize that just to do simply what you said, walk in righteousness, to let our light shine, and help us to show, help us to just lead us and guide us, Lord, into how you would have us to serve us, Lord, how you would have us to serve you this day and every day, Lord, until you return which is our blessed hope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.